Let's uh, pray real quick. Dear God, I thank you for time to open up your word. I thank you for inspiring it and giving it to us. Lord, my prayer is that you would help me to speak with clarity tonight and uh, that you would challenge us and change us by your word. Help us to fall in love with you and with your son, the real Jesus. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, so I'll give you real quick a, uh, a paradigm shift, a, uh, a brand new realization that my oldest daughter, Ella, had about four or five years ago. Uh, for, for those of you one day when you have kids, just so you know, like bedtime is when you're going to have the best conversations with your kids because there's nothing to distract them and they're just kind of laying there and, and the wheels are a lot of times turning before they fall asleep and so they'll ask some great questions um, and, and you'll have a good chance to kind of chat with them. Ella especially, a lot of times I try to like do the like, hey daddy loves you, I'm so proud of you and I feel like I'm having a tender moment and then she just completely ignores me and asks, you know, a random question. So it'll be like, man, dad loves you so much. I really love you. I hope you have a great night, sweetheart. Dad, will pets be in heaven when they die? That's kind of how those conversations go a lot of times. It's just kind of directly to the question. And uh, four or five years ago, so she's six, seven years old, and she asks me this question. Uh, dad, did Jesus live in America when he was here on the earth? And I told her no, and that like blew her mind. Um, and I remember her eyes just getting really big and going, wait, okay, so where did he live? And uh, I told her, uh, well, sweetheart, he lived in a, in a place called Israel. And, and then she just kind of sat there and she's like, wow, you know. And, and she said, wait, wait, does that mean he spoke a different language? And I said, yeah, he spoke a different language. And then she just kind of stared off. She wasn't even looking at me. She was just kind of staring up at the ceiling. And she just said, it just doesn't seem like him. Uh, and... Uh, and I remember in that moment thinking there's something, first of all, really cool about it. I just, anytime my kids' kind of minds are being blown with things that they didn't know, and especially stuff about Jesus, I, I, I kind of like that. But I, I also really loved uh, the familiarity or the assumed familiarity. Like when I tell her he doesn't speak English, or yeah, when I tell her that Jesus doesn't speak English, she's just kind of like, no, I know Jesus. That does not sound like Jesus to me. I'm pretty sure he speaks English. You know what I mean? That kind of, that kind of assumed know him thing. Um, and uh, tonight in our text that we're talking about tonight, we're going to focus on these people, these group of people who had these assumed familiarities with God, that they assumed a lot of things that they knew about how he operates and who he is and what his Messiah would be like. And then when someone came and told them uh, the real truth, namely that person being Jesus, um, all of their kind of paradigms were just thrown out of whack and they did not know how to respond to that. And kind of like Ella, they just sat there going, no, that, that does not seem like the God I know. That does not seem like the way of life that I know I'm supposed to be living. That does not seem like the Messiah that I know. And, uh, and so we get to kind of explore that and then even kind of think through what that looks like for us. So uh, we kind of told you this. What we're going to do each uh, week is we're going to march through two chapters. Tonight I'm going to do a little bit more than two chapters. I'll explain in a bit. But we're going to do uh, a couple chapters each week. And hopefully you're reading at home. And we'll take the first little section of it, the uh, first bit of our night, to just basically give like a 
10,000 foot view. We're going to just fly over those two chapters and, and kind of survey the lay of the land and, and show how Mark's flow of thought is operating, how he connects one story to the next in these, in these two chapters. And then we'll go down to ground level and we'll dig in on one specific passage for just a little bit. So, Mark 1, uh, you can open up to. Uh, I see this section, Mark 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. We're going through verse 6 of chapter 3. I see this section unfolding in three different movements that all kind of tie together as they go. Uh, the first of those movements being uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And that is um, introduction and preparing for Jesus and his ministry. So in this uh, little section here, Mark is going to just lay out a few things to kind of introduce you and get you ready. And he's going to introduce you to John the Baptist. This mostly happens in verses 1 through 8. Introduce you to John the Baptist and kind of lay out what's about to happen through John and then through Jesus. So if you want to open up Mark chapter 1, I'll read the very first verse here. If I can get to it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is, just so you know, the one time in the gospel of Mark that Mark is going to tell you exactly what he thinks. This is like the one explicit time that he's just going to say, Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, and then the rest of what he's going to do is he's just going to set Jesus' actions and his teaching in front of you and let you weigh the evidence. And let you kind of figure it out as you go. Um, Mark does some kind of cool stuff where he does not just spoon feed his readers. He lets you do a little work. I'll talk more about that the next time I get to teach, I think. But um, uh, I think that's kind of cool. And so he lays this out and says, This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes right into this quote from the prophets. Um, he says, I'm quoting from Isaiah, which he does, but it's actually a hybrid quote. He takes a quote from Malachi and from Isaiah. So Isaiah is the most famous of the prophets. Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. The very last words that the Holy Spirit inspired before everything went silent for 400 years and then Jesus showed up. So it's almost like Mark is saying, all right, we're going to pick up right where we left off four centuries ago. Malachi told you that someone was going to come, a messenger was going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. Now let me tell you who that guy is. And then he introduces you to John the Baptist. And he says that John comes, and it says that John wore a camel hair garment, this is in verse 6, and with a leather belt around his waist. Now that's kind of fascinating, because Mark doesn't get into the details too often. And as far as I can remember, never tells you anywhere else in this book what anyone is wearing. But for whatever reason, for some reason, he believes that it's important for you to know what John the Baptist is wearing. And, and if you ever come across something like that, huh, John or Mark never talks about clothes, but he talks about it here, you've got to ask the question, why? Why does that matter? And the reason why is because the clothes that John the Baptist is wearing is the exact clothes that Elijah the prophet is said to be wearing in 1 Kings 1.8. 2 Kings 1.8, I believe, actually. Um, is, is the exact clothes that Elisha is said, or Elijah is said to be wearing. And this, this is another allusion to Malachi 4. The very last words of the Old Testament say, Behold, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the day of the Lord. So before the Lord comes to you, Elijah the prophet is coming. And then Mark comes and says, And this guy John the Baptist comes, and he's wearing Elijah's clothes. Wink, wink, 
right before Jesus comes. As if to kind of just lay out what Malachi said was going to happen. It's happening right before your eyes. And so he lays out John the Baptist and gives, gives that to you. And then in verses 9 through 15, we see that Jesus is baptized by John. He is affirmed by the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. And then he comes back and he begins his ministry. Uh, verse 15 says this. This is the message of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Jesus travels around saying. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then what Mark does is he takes us into the second movement where he begins to give examples of the kingdom of God as Jesus enacts it on the earth. What it looks like when the kingdom comes with the Son of God. And, and so he gives you these examples of his teaching and some of his healing, some of the things that he does. Um, so that moves us into movement two, which we're going to call this growing ministry and popularity. So in this section, we'll see these themes. We'll see people being amazed at what Jesus does. We'll see growing crowds coming around Jesus as often as they come. You'll see things like the whole town came to Jesus or people came from everywhere to see him or Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And so more and more people are gathering around as they find out uh, more about this Jesus. In verses 16 to 20, Jesus calls his first disciples, uh, Simon and Andrew, Simon also called Peter, who if you remember, uh, Ryan said this, that we believe Mark to be basically Peter's teachings and stories written down. So Peter tells the stories, Mark writes them down and puts them into a letter. Um, so Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and then James and John are called. And then Jesus goes into this uh, synagogue in Capernaum. And when he's in there, a man who has a demon in him comes up and confronts Jesus. And Jesus silences the demon and casts out the demon. And then he begins to teach in the synagogue. Um, and the people are amazed at his teaching. It says there in verse 27, they were all amazed and so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. When they say that Jesus teaches with authority, it means two things. One is he's not just talk, he actually has power. We just saw him cast a demon out. Um, but the other thing is, Jesus was not teaching like any of the other rabbis. Around this time, when the rabbis came and showed up, they based their authority in the authority of a previous rabbi. So they would come and they would say, well, when we open up the book of Leviticus, we can see it says this and this and this. And Rabbi Gamaliel teaches us this. And they would begin to teach based on Rabbi Gamaliel's teaching. Jesus did not come up and say, Gamaliel said this. So-and-so said this. He came and said, I say to you this. In fact, you see in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And so Jesus doesn't teach under the authority of another rabbi. He teaches under his own authority as he teaches these things. He'll go from the synagogue into Peter's house where he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then it says that the whole town assembles at the doorway of the house. And he spends the whole evening healing people and casting out demons. And then you come to this odd line in Mark 1, verse 34. says these words, um, He healed many who were sick and various diseases and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. 
And that actually happened when he cast out that demon in, in the synagogue in Capernaum. The guy starts saying, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, quiet, and shuts him up. And Jesus will not allow the demons to identify him. Later, he's going to heal a leper in the very next story. And he's going to tell the guy, shh, don't tell anybody what I just did. It doesn't work. The guy goes and tells everybody. But he tells him not to tell anyone. This is what scholars call the messianic secret. And it's, it's most prominent in Mark. So some people call it Mark's messianic secret. And there's this question, why does Jesus want to keep it a secret that he's the Messiah? Wouldn't he want everybody to know that? Doesn't he want everybody to see that and get that? There's a couple theories as to why that is. Probably one of them is that Jesus is waiting on the right timing to reveal things. Another is, is part of why I believe Jesus' ministry works in the way Mark writes, is he does not just hand everything out, he wants people to lean in. But the bigger deal, I believe, is this. Everybody in Jesus' day, when they heard the term Messiah, they thought military ruler. Someone who will come with the sword, who will conquer all of the Roman Empire and set us up as the great empire on the earth again. And Jesus knows if people start to hear the word that he's the Messiah, it's not going to help them understand him. It's going to cause them to see him the wrong way. And so Jesus holds off and he just reveals little bits and truths about who he is and what he's about so they can begin to come to the, the right conclusions about him as they go. In uh, the next session, Jesus is off by himself praying and the disciples come to him and say, what are you doing? Everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, listen, we got to go and we got to preach in other villages. For that is why I have come, he says, to preach the kingdom of God. And then in the next session, we see him, he's preaching, and this leper comes up to him and says to him, I love, this is for whatever reason one of my favorite stories. I've just kind of always been a little bit moved by it. But this leper comes up to Jesus. Uh, a leper would be someone who, Ryan talked about it last week, is unclean. And by Levitical rule, by the law, he's not allowed to be around people, even his own family, because he's deemed unclean, and he'll make everybody else ceremonially unclean. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Mark says that Jesus moved with compassion, says, I am willing. And he touches him and makes him clean. And again, Ryan touched about, uh, talked about this. In the Bible, what we see is that uncleanness or a lack of purity is contagious. So if something or someone is unclean and you touch it, you get unclean. All right? Um, but Jesus... With Jesus, it works the opposite. Jesus' holiness, Jesus' cleanness, His purity is the one that actually attacks the uncleanness. And so He doesn't become unclean. He makes this man clean. And that's how that works. And He says, don't tell anyone, but, but the man goes out, tells everyone, and news begins to spread so much that Jesus can't even go into villages anymore. This is the perfect transition into movement three. Because two things just happened in that verse that are going to set up movement three. The first is he spread the news so everyone knows about him now. Okay, the growing popular and growing resistance. The second thing, though, is that Jesus' miracle there was actually a little bit taboo. Because you're not supposed to touch lepers. That's, that makes anybody else unclean, even though Jesus is different. They don't know that. And so he just did something that's a little bit taboo. And that leads us into movement three, which is growing resistance. So we just saw growing popularity and growing ministry. Now we will see growing resistance from the religious leaders, from the religious establishment of the day there, as Jesus is going to have this in this section four confrontations 
based around different Jewish rituals and traditions. He's going to have four confrontations with the religious leaders. And this is a cool little section of scripture. In each of these confrontations, there's going to be a question that is asked of Jesus. Why he operates in a certain way, or who he thinks he is. And if you have the ability as the reader to answer that question accurately, you're going to get one step closer to knowing who this Jesus is. The more you're able to answer the questions, the closer you get to what Mark wants you to know as you go through these. And so we begin in chapter 2, verse 1. We'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on this movement. This is where I want us to focus tonight. Um, there are similar themes in this movement as there are in the third one. We see Jesus' authority and power. We see crowds. But again, now it focuses on the religious establishment and the way it responds to him. Um, specifically, we're going to be learning about the scribes and the Pharisees. These are two words that, are, that were pretty overlapping. Scribes were people whose job was to copy down the law and make sure people were getting it right. And usually they came from the, the sect of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of people who were committed to making sure that the Jewish people did not stray away from God and His law. They had, at least in the beginning, really good motivations. They didn't want them to go down the same bad path that people went down for so long. And so they wanted to make sure that the law was protected and that the Jews held to it. But they, they ended up setting the standards really, really high. They, they basically made the standards that the law sets out for the priests. They wanted to hold the whole Jewish community to that standard and even beyond that. And, and any time things seemed a little fuzzy to them in the law, they decided to go in and clear it up and make it a little bit more distinct and a little bit more um, concrete and said, well, this is what we mean. This is what needs to be done. And that often got in the way of them understanding the heart of the law. So try to move through these four things fairly quickly. Um, the first question surrounds this statement that Jesus makes. He's in Capernaum again in chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 and he's in this house and it's so jam-packed full of people that people are bursting out the door. No one can get in to see him and so these guys are trying to get their paralytic friend into Jesus hoping he can heal him. They dig a hole in the roof I mean, because it's like mud and thatch and all that stuff and they dig that out. They lower the guy down in there and it says when Jesus saw their faith that they trusted that he could do this, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Um, the scribes are appalled at this, and they ask this first question in Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now here's the thing, they're actually right. Only God can forgive sins. Uh, why? Why is it that only God has the ability to forgive sins? The answer is because you can only forgive someone who's wronged you personally. Right? So if Danker steals something from Jared, okay, the mask, because that's what made me think. I just thought, like, you look kind of like a bandit right now, so I'm picking on you. All right? So um, if Danker steals something from Jared, I can't go to Danker and say, uh, hey, it's okay, man, I totally forgive you for that. Jared's going to be standing there going, what, what does that have to do with anything? He didn't take anything from you, man. He took it from me. So I don't, I don't have the ability, the right to forgive Danker for that sin. Only if he's done something to me. So when Jesus says to this paralytic, 
who is sitting there on the ground. This paralytic who has never met Jesus before in his life, Jesus looks at him and says, all your sins are forgiven. What Jesus is saying to this man is, you may not have ever met me, but every sin you've ever committed was against me. And I forgive you of all of them. That's a big statement. And that's why they go, only God can forgive sins. Now, I think, I think Mark intends when he writes this, he writes these words out and then he looks up at us and he winks. And he goes, right? Only God can, can forgive sins. We're all on the same page. And Jesus is forgiving sins. Therefore, all right, you track with me. I think that's what he's doing there. And, and he just kind of leaves us at that. And so if you can answer that question, why does this guy think he can forgive sins? Jesus says, I can forgive sins, and I'll prove it to you. And, and he says to the man, get up and walk. And he gets up in front of everybody, and they're amazed. And he shows that the Son of Man, that favorite term he has for himself, the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. This is the first great confrontation. The second one has to do um, with who Jesus hangs out with. Uh, we see in, chap- in verse 13 and 17, He's out by the sea, and he's walking along, and he sees this man named Levi. We think that this guy is probably Matthew, because in in the book of Matthew, a very similar story is told about a tax collector named Matthew that Jesus walks by, and he calls him to follow him, and he does. So we think that this may be Matthew. He calls Matthew to follow him. He gets up, or Levi, he does it, and then it says he reclines. If If you read in the CSB, in most versions, it says he goes to Levi's house and has a party with him. He eats with him. Actually, the Greek says he goes to his house, and at his house he has a party with him. There's actually a pretty good chance he's talking about Jesus' house, at least the house that he's staying at, that he invites everybody over to his house. Um, and, And that's where this party is going on. And of course, if you can catch uncleanness from people or things, there is no group of people that you're going to catch a greater amount of uncleanness from than tax collectors. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were literally traitors who were ripping off their own people to help Rome continue to oppress their own people. They were the worst, and everybody hated them, and they knew that they were not just turning on their own people to make a buck, but they were probably cheating them while they did that. And he's hanging out with these tax collectors, and he's hanging out with sinners, and this is a sign of Jesus' own lack of morality and his own lack of ceremonial purity, that he would eat with these people who are certainly not following all the kosher laws, who are certainly not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so they ask why Jesus hangs out with sinners like him. And uh, in verse 17, Jesus' response is great. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are, uh, who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, Note, he does call them sick. He doesn't say, hey, the tax collectors live their way, you live your way, what does it matter? Let's let everybody kind of do their own thing. No, he he knows that they're sick. He knows that they're in need of help. So he's he's going to call them to change, but the thing with Jesus is um, he does not believe that they have to get their crap together before he'll associate himself with them. They don't have to clean up their act before he's willing to be around them and and know them and accept them because that's what eating with someone was a sign of. I accept you, that I'm with you in this. Um, And so he's willing to do this. That leads us to our third question and our third controversy when Jesus is asked a question about fasting. Uh, It tells us that the Pharisees' disciples, they fast. And John the Baptist's disciples, they fast. But Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. 
There were two different kinds of fasting. Public fasting, and that was mandatory. Everybody had to do it. Leading up to the Day of Atonement, this is what we do as the people of God. We fast to prepare ourselves for this. Or in times of national crisis, there's a famine or an army's coming to attack and kill us. The king decrees everybody's fasting while we pray and ask God to deliver us. That has to happen. But then there was private fasting, and that was voluntary. That was something you did on your own. Um, and, And this was something that the Pharisees were really fond of. Mondays and Thursdays, those were the two days, because you weren't allowed to fast on the Sabbath, and Mondays and Thursdays were kind of set apart from the Sabbath, but they were also a little bit set apart from each other, so you had a chance to take a break before and then go into your next fast after a couple days. And so twice a week, many of the Pharisees fasted, and this was a sign that they were extra spiritual. This is a sign that they were extra devoted and committed, unlike Jesus' disciples, because they don't do the same kinds of things we do. And so they asked Jesus this question, why is it? Uh, Actually, it's not the Pharisees who ask it. These are just people in verse 18. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus says to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they had the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when they will fast, when he will be taken away from them. This This makes two statements about Jesus. His coming and His kingdom is a celebration. It's a joyous occasion. There's no reason to fast or mourn. It makes no sense to do that when I'm around, Jesus says. The second thing that He does here is He takes this illustration and this word picture that is used for God throughout the Old Testament, that God is the bridegroom and the people of Israel are His bride, and He attributes that to Him now. And He calls Himself the groom. I am the point. I am the one that the people of God belong to. And that's a big deal. That's another kind of subtle way that Jesus hints at who He is. The last controversy takes place surrounding two Sabbath, uh, two Sabbath violations. And I'll, I'll cover them quickly. The first one is they're walking through a field one day and the disciples, uh, as they're walking along, this is on the Sabbath, they're walking through and they're hungry so they snap some grain off the top of things and they kind of pop it in their mouth to eat. Um, the Pharisees catch them do this and say, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? The problem is not popping the grain off. The law said, actually, you're allowed to take a little grain off of your neighbor's field if you're hungry. You just can't use a sickle. You can't go out there and like full-on harvest, right? But if you just want to grab a handful, you can do that. So that's not the problem. The problem is the Pharisees consider this work. They're working today. They're harvesting by doing this, okay? And so the Pharisees are, are accusing them of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus gives a couple answers. One is, hey, if you'll go back, you'll see that King David did this in time of need. He ate bread that was only supposed to belong to the priests. So the law was set aside for the king. The law was set aside when the time was important. And so the law is set aside here. And he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The second issue takes place in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And this is the first time where the tables turn. This time it's Jesus who's asking the question, and this time it's Jesus' turn to get angry. A man walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's got a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees, this is kind of interesting, the question is not, is Jesus able to heal him? They all know it. Everybody knows what Jesus can do. Jesus has got the power to heal this guy. So their question is, I wonder if we watch him, if he'll go ahead and heal on the Sabbath, because that's a no-no. You're not supposed to help. You're not supposed to do things like that. That's work. 
And so they watch him. Jesus knows this. This is the only miracle that Jesus does that is unprovoked. That is, this doesn't happen because somebody with a demon comes up and confronts Jesus. It doesn't happen because somebody asks. It, because, it happens because Jesus wants to pick a fight. And so he pulls this guy up in front of everybody and he asks this question. Chapter 3, uh, verse 3, verse 4, Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now they got an answer. The answer is, this was the rabbi tradition, you are allowed to help someone on the Sabbath if they are in mortal danger. If not, they can come back and get help tomorrow. So that's, that would be the answer. Is uh, If this guy really wants his hand healed, tell him to come back and see you tomorrow, Jesus. Okay? But Jesus doesn't frame the question like that. Jesus frames it differently. He says, what is the Sabbath for? Because the Sabbath is for restoration. The Sabbath is for renewal. The Sabbath is a gift to God for us to be made whole and be made right. And so he says, is it good to do what is right and to renew and restore on the Sabbath? And they refuse to answer him. And then it says that Jesus is angered at all of them as he looks around and deeply distressed at their stubborn and hardened hearts. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Doesn't This is kind of interesting. He actually technically doesn't even break a Sabbath law in that moment because he doesn't use an ointment. He doesn't mix something together. He doesn't have to touch the dude or stretch anything out. Just with a word, he heals the man. But that's enough for the Pharisees. And it says that they go out with the Herodians. The Herodians are the people who are supporting Rome's rulers. So the Pharisees hate the Herodians, but they hate Jesus more. So they get together with the Herodians to plot how they can kill Jesus from there on out. Uh, but there is this one little section that I want to go back on. It, it, it seems to be sort of random, and it's when Jesus is asked about fasting. When he tells them about the bridegroom and that you don't fast when the groom comes, he then goes into these two little seemingly random word pictures in chapter 2, verses uh, 21 through 22 there. Right after he talks about this bridegroom language, he says this, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skin, and the wine is lost, as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And, and so Jesus... After talking about this wedding and this groom speech, he then goes into this kind of random illustration about unshrunk cloth and, and old and new wineskins and all those things. And I remember I used to read that and go, what in the world does that have to do anything with fasting, Jesus? What does that have to do with bridegrooms and weddings and all of this stuff? What, is, what does that have to do with anything? And then I actually realized as I began to study that those two verses are the entire point of chapters 2 all the way through verse 6 of 3. All of that third movement can be summed up in those two verses right there. Um, the idea was simple and well known. That is that um, you could not take a piece of cloth that was unshrunk, because every time you wash a piece of cloth for the first time, it's going to shrink. And if you take a new piece of cloth, it's going to be stronger than the old. And you try and patch it on there. The moment that that new cloth shrinks, it's going to pull at the seams of the old cloth and rip it in half. 
And, and back then they carried their wine around in these leather pouches, these wine skins that was in there. And whenever you would put new wine in something, the gas from that new wine would emit from it and it would cause the wine skin to expand. And it was common knowledge that you could not put new wine in old wine skins because the old wine skins had already expanded to their limits. And they were brittle and they weren't going to be able to handle it. So as soon as that gas began to emit and the wine expanded, you would lose both the wine skin and the wine as it burst open and came out through those things. And Mark is using this word picture here, and Jesus is, as an explanation for everything that is happening in this section. When Jesus pronounces forgiveness and the Pharisees call it blasphemy, when he eats with sinners and the Pharisees think it's scandalous, when the disciples aren't fasting and everybody thinks they're unpious, when Jesus is breaking Sabbath tradition and they think that he's unlawful, in all of those moments, they're trying to take their old wineskins and fit the new wine that is Jesus and his kingdom inside of it. David Garland says it like this. He's a New Testament scholar. You have his quote at the bottom of the page. The point is clear. The new that Jesus brings is incompatible with the old. He has not come to patch up an old system that does not match the revolutionary rule of God. He is not simply a reformer of the old, but one who will transform it. So he didn't come to fix Judaism. He didn't come to fix their traditions. He came to radically alter it to replace it with something newer and better and greater, and the two will not be compatible. The Pharisees and their own definitions for piety and holiness, their own definition for the Messiah and for religion and for God, was something that they could not be fit with Jesus. And like new cloth or new wine, he burst through that over and over again, and it left them blind and hard-hearted to the truth. Now, it's really, really easy for us to look back with hindsight and say those foolish, hard-hearted Pharisees. How could they get that wrong over and over again? But the truth is that this is not simply a Pharisee problem. This is a human problem. This is a sin problem. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so throughout history, everyone who has come to Jesus has gotten him wrong and has tried to shove him into an old wineskin that will not fit. The Jews could not fit him inside of their wineskin, their concept of what the Messiah was supposed to be and what true devotion and religion really was. The Gentiles could not get past the idea that Jesus was supposed to be a savior and a ruler and yet he was crucified like a low common criminal. And they could not get around the idea of resurrection because that seemed crazy to them. The Roman Catholic Church in the 16th, 15th, and 16th century could not get past this idea that you needed the church's traditions and rituals to know God and get saved. They could not fit grace that is offered through Jesus Christ, through faith alone, into their scheme and what they had. In much of Europe, for most of its history, and in early America and even today, a lot of people struggled to be able to fit the new wine of Jesus into their old wine skin of white Jesus, who stands only for people who look like us, who does not care about people who look different than me, who act different than me, with different skin colors than me. And for years and years, they had to try and push aside the real Jesus to continue to believe the things that they wanted to believe. For most of us, in our parents' generation, 
They saw Jesus as a Republican, protecting the good of America and protecting traditional values of the family. And anything that went against that could not have really been what Jesus is about because we know what he's for. He's for America. He's for the Republicans. He's for the moral majority. Most people in our generation have a version of Jesus, a wineskin that sees him as nice and non-judgmental, a person who would never condemn anyone to hell because condemning someone to hell, that's just not loving, right? That's just not nice and Jesus is loving. But in order to believe that, you have to push aside the real Jesus because he's not going to fit in that wineskin. And there are a thousand different wineskins that people try to fit Jesus into. A thousand different wineskins and concepts of God and religion that people try to hold on to. Whether that be this idea that everyone has their own way to get to God and it's important that they find God within themselves. So Jesus was a wonderful man, a very spiritual man with some great teaching. We should listen to him. And if you want to follow him as the Son of God, that's great, but that's not my truth. The problem being that all of Jesus' teaching is based on his identity as the Son of God. Why can he say your sins are forgiven? Because I'm God and I can do that. Why can we live like this under the Sabbath? Because I'm Lord of the Sabbath and I can do that. And so the moment you throw out his identity, you throw out his teaching with it. A lot of people fit Jesus or God into their own religious wineskin, and that is that to be truly accepted by God, you have to do this and this and this and this. And there's the old school way of doing that, which is you got to go to church and don't cuss and don't smoke and don't drink and don't watch rated R movies or listen to secular music. And there's kind of all those kind of weird kind of old school ways that our people did it. But, but listen, there is a new form of religiosity that is just as powerful, which is that you better be tolerant and you better be open-minded. And you better, you better care about social justice. And if you don't do those things, and if you don't do it strong enough on social media, and if you don't come out harsh enough against people who seem to go against what we want, then, then you've got no part in us, and you don't really know Jesus, and you're not really spiritual, and you're not really a good person. All they've done, they're just as religious as people were before. They've just exchanged the rules. They've just changed the standards by which they gauge their spirituality. By the way, it is interesting For those people who always want to say that Jesus only cares about those who are down and out, for those people who want a social justice warrior Jesus, it's fascinating that when Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors, he's actually hanging out with the high and out. Jesus is hanging out with rich people who rip off the poor and oppressed. Dude, Jesus came into that today, hang out with the top 1% who made their money by like ripping off other people. Like, you, you know how many people would try to cancel him on Twitter? You know how many people would come out and, and protest against Jesus for those things? But Jesus has a grace that is so much bigger than us, thankfully. And he's willing to reach out not just to the down and out, but to the high and out. And to reach to those people. There are a lot of people who see Jesus or God as a life coach who's there to help me self-actualize myself, to help me succeed and become the best version of myself, to reach my full potential. A book written several years ago, Girl, Wash Your Face. Um, Another sequel to that, Girl, Don't Apologize, is all about this idea that what Jesus does is he helps you to see that you have what it takes within you. And you need to stop believing the lies that have been said about you. And Jesus can help you if you have faith to see how important you are and that you can do whatever you need to do. Don't let people tell you otherwise. And what Jesus becomes is a life coach who's there to help me succeed in life. Jesus doesn't actually come and say, I'm going to help you be a better version of yourself. He comes and says, I want you to die to yourself. 
I think for many of us, though, the kind of Jesus or the kind of wineskin that we have is kind of like a life jacket, which is uh, something that's really helpful in times of great need and emergency. But other than that, it's kind of irrelevant. Like, what do I need a life jacket for when I'm sitting in class? If I'm nowhere near a body of water, a life jacket is not only irrelevant, it's, it's actually kind of cumbersome and inconvenient. And I think for many people, Jesus fits in this box of someone I cry out to when I've got a need, something that I've got trouble with, something that I need help succeeding in or something. But other than that, I really don't have much else use for him. I don't spend a lot of time talking about him. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how I can please him or honor him. But the real Jesus is a Jesus that calls for your allegiance. He redeemed all of you, so he owns all of you, so he wants all of you. So here's the question, what is your wineskin? What, what is the form of Jesus that you keep trying to fit the real Jesus inside of? You probably, here's the thing, you might not even know it. It usually isn't something that occurs to you until it's confronted. So here's two questions to ask yourself to figure that out. The first is this, are there things that you simply cannot conceive of Jesus doing? For example, Jesus would never call me to something that would make me unhappy. Or Jesus would never ask me to not be true to who I am, true to my real feelings, true to what I desire in life. Or Jesus would never give me more than I could handle. If you believe things like that, then you're probably believing in a Jesus that's not the real one. Or another big question to ask is, what do you talk to Jesus about? Because if you spend most of your time praying to Jesus about, God, help me pass this test, help me get into this college, help me get this job, those are okay things to pray about, by the way. But if all your prayers are about that, then you're talking to life coach Jesus, whose job is to help you succeed in life. If all your prayers are for emergency, something came up, God, I need you to come in here for me, then you're talking to life jacket Jesus or life jacket God. If you never really pray all that much, then you're just talking to an irrelevant one. But if your prayers are prayers of surrender and prayers of praise and prayers for His kingdom to advance, those might be signs amidst the others. You can pray for help. You can pray in times of distress. But when you're praying those things, it means you're talking to the real Jesus. You can't just try to fit Him into your own way of thinking because Jesus will destroy it. You need new wineskins for a new new kingdom. Let me give you bad news and good news and then we'll wrap up. The bad news is that the real Jesus is kind of scary because the real Jesus um, is not comfortable. That's, that's why we have fake Jesuses. That's why we keep the wineskins that we have because they make us comfortable. And the real, the real Jesus is going to want more from you. Um, but here's the good news. Whatever your Jesus is, whatever your wineskin is, the new wine of Jesus is so much better than it. It's, his grace is so much bigger than you could imagine. His power is so much beyond what you could conceive. The love that He has for you and for the people around you is so much deeper than you could ever dream. And knowing Him brings real freedom. So I read to you 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, where Paul says that the God of this age has blinded unbelievers. And then he goes on to talk later in that chapter about what it looks like to actually see the real Jesus. He says this, For to this day, when people read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. That is, they're still blinded to him. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But 
When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, this is, when He reveals the true Jesus to you, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's my hope and challenge for us that this semester that you will be ready, or this summer, you will be ready to lay down the old wineskins and take on the new wine of Jesus. Take on the new wine of His kingdom and that you'll introduce yourself to the real one, however much that may be uncomfortable, however much that may challenge you. Let me pray for that and we'll be done. Dear God, I pray just that you would open our eyes because we don't have the ability to see you as we should unless your spirit comes and does that. So open up our eyes to Jesus. Help him see him as he is this summer and let us be changed by him. I ask your spirit to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks guys for sweating it out with us and uh, and showing up here. Really appreciate it. We'll let you know kind of as the week goes what our plan, what our game plan is next week for all of these things. But... Um, Stay tuned. If you're not on the summer group me, which I'm not, I've been excluded from that. But if those of you guys who are cool kids, could you let anybody else who's not on that in on that thing so they can know what other stuff is going on? There's always things kind of happening. Would love for you guys to be hanging out on that stuff, even if I'm not invited. So.